Australia, the land down under and home to perhaps the most aggressive tax authority on the planet in three letters that strike fear in the hearts of every multinational tax director, the ATO or Australian Tax Office. Aggressive, of course, is an understatement. Nearly 200 multinationals have been hit with $2.5 billion in adjustments in fiscal year 2020 alone, with $1.5 billion of that amount being disputed by 26 different taxpayers. It seems not even a global pandemic can slow this jurisdiction down, which would be one thing if the country's transfer pricing rules better reflected OECD guidelines, but perhaps what best exemplifies how Australia sticks out like a sore thumb in global transfer pricing is trying to find another country that requires as many as five years in the interquartile range of their economic analysis requirements. So the short of it, this jurisdiction does not play around and they do not make it easy on anyone but themselves. So it helps to have someone on the inside who can tell you how the Australian tax office looks at transfer pricing. And today we may have just that knight in shining armor. Today's guest, Jeff Morris is not just any veteran of the ATO. He led the economist practice at the agency for 10 years between 2010 and 2020. And he joins us today to share the wealth of that knowledge. In speaking of knowledge, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planning three CPE code words throughout the episode. Send all three. We're going to make them easy this time, I promise, to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona Show, all one word, at xbs.ai. Now, before we get to Australia, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Poland is back in the transfer pricing ring, gloves up and ready to swing in. The Polish finance ministry plans to amend the country's corporate income tax laws in 2021. The goal? More tax compliance. And for MEs operating in tax havens, the news is not good. The plan is to implement a super low threshold of 100,000 zlotys, that's approximately 25,500 US dollars, for reporting on transfer pricing transactions in tax havens and specifically entities incorporated in a tax haven or whose beneficial owner is in one. MNEs will have to file documentation for each transaction, bummer, putting them at higher risk of adjustments with the finance ministry. If approved, the bill could go into effect as early as January 1st. The takeaway, Poland knows how to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Going public. It's great for companies. Hello, IPO. And relationships. Look who's officially a couple. But what about transfer pricing? The EU is considering taking country-by-country country reports public, a prospect that has some m and shaking in their boots. German Federal Minister of Finance Olaf Scholz announced the plan at a European Commission online tax event early last week. According to Scholz, the commission is open to debate, but we hear a handful of EU member states are already on board. But don't kill the messenger. Germany's Minister of Finance may have made the announcement about country-by-country country reporting, but the government itself is still on the fence. Business as usual is a phrase of the past. Thanks a lot, COVID. The New Zealand Inland Revenue has issued transfer pricing guidance for businesses rocked by the pandemic. The nutshell, contemporaneous documentation goes a long way. Obviously, you'll have to prove arm's length transactions, pandemic or not. This is still transfer pricing. But you'll also have to explain why and how any business setbacks can be attributed 
to the pandemic. Not an easy task, given that 2020's comparable data may be out of whack. But the Inland Revenue has an answer for that, too. Reference pre-COVID-19 data and analyze the impacts from government subsidies, unusual expenses, and adjustments. Looks like the Inland Revenue is trying to keep the Kiwis out of the Kiwis. You know what I'm saying? Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. We are very happy to welcome 10-year veteran of the ATO in the economist practice at the agency, Mr. Jeff Morris, on today's show. And by we, I mean myself, Matthew DeMello, and Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, who's also on the line. You're going to hear from her in a moment. But Jeff, sticking with you, thank you so much for being on today's program. Great to be here, Matthew. So tell us a little bit about where you're based in the world. Melbourne, in the state of Victoria, down here in Australia. For those who don't know, uh, Melbourne is the second largest city, about 4 million people odd, at the southern end of the uh, continent. And what has the COVID situation there been like for you? Well, in, in Victoria, it's been quite trying. Melbourne has been in lockdown since March, with a break home quarantine for around six weeks in July. After that, from August, the second wave hit us and sent us back into lockdown again. We won't be released from lockdown or quarantine until probably the end of October. So it's been a long stretch. Mm. And at home here, I have my wife and uh, her mother and um, our two sons. All of us have been learning or working from home, constant streaming and video calls. Home feels like a nine-to-five office with hot desking and uh, laughed with my wife this evening. We even have to book rooms yeah. for different calls at times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. I think somebody uh, put it, it's not working from home, it's living at work. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah that's, what it, that's what it feels like. But tell us, going back into your career, how did you get into transfer pricing? I did an economics degree at university and went off to Canberra, our capital city, to work in treasury and work on industry policy and economic policy and budgets. And with my fiance, we decided to move to her hometown, which is Melbourne. And I seemed to have fallen into transfer pricing. I thought that's something around economics in Melbourne. So let me try my hand at that. That was in the... um, in the late 90s and actually quite fortunate because when i joined the ato at that time i was one of the founding members of the uh, field economist practice which was specifically recruited just to do transfer pricing and it was the first group of economists to join the ato in that uh, transfer pricing type analytical role 
it was kind of by accident, but I actually loved it. It's it's a really great area, lots of arguments, lots of economic analysis. I like to think um, it does some good for the community as well. That's right. Now, what was it like to work for the ATO? Well, of course, it's uh, had its moments, uh, being a large organization, trying to do compliance work in an area where there was, you know, originally very little expertise or understanding to start with. But the opportunity has been fantastic. You know, for the last, up until I left at the beginning of this year, I've had nothing but risk reviews, audits, APAs and maps for, you know, that's 20 odd years. Not having to do a doc study, you know, is a, <laughs> right. is, um, is a joy that most people don't have. So, you know, reviewing taxpayers' documentation, interviewing taxpayer staff, developing the TP analysis, you know, that I would need to, you know, vigorously defend in front of the taxpayer. And I really love just putting that position and defending it. With experience, I was actually able to travel the world as an economist, you know, as part of the um, APA and MAP um, negotiating teams, negotiating those outcomes with other tax authorities. I think I've been, the only continent I haven't, or two continents haven't been to is Africa and South America. So I've been pretty fortunate, I think. Yeah, yeah, I would say so as well. And as we hear so often on the show, it's almost as though transfer pricing finds you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I think the story is always similar with all of many of the people I run into in transfer pricing. Just to give you a little bit of my background, I, I'm the same. I had an economics degree and I thought, mm. what, what can I do with this? And mm. lo and behold, there was transfer pricing, right? So. <laughs> That's right. And if you like arguments, you know, like I do, then and wanting to win, it's kind of a great place. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's dive right into it. I mean, I, I think your background is fascinating. You've been working with the ATO a long time and, and being a founding member for transfer pricing, you know, within the ATO. I mean, in your opinion, you've had a long history there, but in your opinion, what makes working with the ATO on transfer pricing different than, than working with other tax authorities? Mm, bit of a loaded question. I could give all the dirt on the ATO <laughs> <laughs> and dirt on the other authorities I've seen, other tax jurisdictions I've seen as well, and I'll add out, out over the course of this conversation. But I'd like to think, you know, that the ATO is more TP aware, you know, pragmatic and practical possibly even commercial, you know, in resolving TP issues when it, you know, than some other jurisdictions. The ATO has been assisted by what is now a large economist team. You know, they've got senior people with some depth of transfer pricing experience. You know, they're focused on, you know, the technical merits of a case, you know, understanding functions, assets, risks, and choosing the right method and the right comparables and making the right adjustments. But I think the ATO does also bear in mind the legal tests. You mentioned, you know, the, the, the kind of attorney lens. Your view of the world is, is an important one, that the, the teams do have to apply the tax law, but they also need to have an eye on what's, you know, commercially realistic. So, you know, even though the law has to be met and there's the TP technical analysis, the outcomes and the agreements and the resolutions to the audit still have to make commercial sense. I'd like to think, you know, the ATO gets it, takes those things into account, not all the time, because <laughs> I know that that's not the case, but hopefully they, they, I think they will take it into all of those three things into account more often than some other jurisdictions. But I, I would have to admit, I think Australia 
at this moment has a little bit of a reputation for being one of the more challenging tax mm-hmm. authorities. Mm-hmm. What, where do you think that where do you think that reputation comes from? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, the approach you know I would take as part of my role in the economist practice, you know, and working with the auditors themselves, is it's better you're better off asking for more, so a greater adjustment than you think you can kind of wholly justify than asking only for what you think you can prove. Because part of the challenge here is that the TP analysis, even if it's based on OECD guidelines, you know, it's very hard to find the, the, you know, the legal standard of proof or evidence to justify a position. And if it does come down to a commercial pragmatic, you know, view of a reasonable profit outcome in Australia, you know, then it'd be better off asking for more and and giving ground than not asking for enough and leaving as some of our early advisors would say leaving money on the on the table the other thing i think that's changed probably in the last 10 years or so is the ato made almost a conscious decision to move away from just pricing the arrangement as we as we found it because as we know an agreement you know between related parties can say you know anything that the related parties wanted to say yeah. and if one just priced the arrangement as it would found it would possibly end up with you know arms length pricing of a non-arms length arrangement so they had spent quite a bit of time up to you know 2010 looking at how the law worked looking at how the OECD guidelines worked in this space and they ATO actually lost the case that gave them some impetus to um, change the law. And back in 2010, they, they changed the law to allow the ATO to have much more scope to restructure the arrangements that the taxpayers had put on the table. Because there's been a large economist practice, you know, when I left, there was 80 economists. Wow. That's quite a team, not as big as the US team, I don't think, but still quite significant. And we spent a fair bit of time not just doing the work, doing the risk reviews and doing the audits, but also spending a bit of time thinking about, you know, with the program managers thinking about how do we, quote marks, solve transfer pricing? So what guidance can we give taxpayers? What tax alerts could the ATO issue? What practical compliance guidelines could we issue? What benchmarks could we make more plain? And we say here in Australia, you know, swim between the flags. So if you're a surfer, swimming between the flags will keep you from being sucked out to sea. It's a safe place to swim. And the ATO has spent a lot of time thinking about how to provide guidance to taxpayers on swimming between the flags. And I think, you know, probably a final point here is that the ATO has kind of seen, you know, transfer pricing risk it's something of a landscape. Mm-hmm. At one end, there's you know fairly simple or straightforward you know intergroup services, you know admin services, and other you know evaluating services. And there's just distributors, and there's you know manufacturers of different yeah yeah <laughs> manufacturers of different yeah different sizes um types and so on. They've asked themselves the question, you know, do we see all the transfer pricing risk in this landscape? So how did the BETS initiative sort of play into the ATO's viewpoint on transfer pricing, right? I think ATO was an early adopter of Mm. BETS, and there's a question of how did it 
change, if, if anything, you know, the ATA's perception of transfer pricing and, and the potential commercial benefits of, of transfer pricing, right? You know, maybe a little bit of a secret here, you know, the ATA, because they've spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about transfer pricing as a, a kind of a problem to solve and thought about, you know, the types of arrangements that the poor old economists, as it were, were forced to price, even though they thought some of those arrangements didn't necessarily reflect what an arm's length party would do. A lot of their thinking had already been along the lines of the BEPS, you know, action items 8 to 10 and other action items as well. So the, those items 8 to 10 didn't really come as any surprise, I would say, and actually, you know, were because the, the ATO does spend a lot of time at the OECD on working party six and so on to make those initiatives kind of be least consistent with what the ATO is trying to do. So those action items didn't come at any surprise. In fact, they kind of confirmed the kind of approach that the ATO was starting to adopt. And because those things were now written into the OECD guidelines, the ATO saw, you know, merit in changing their law to refer to the eight to 10 action items, you know, which included some... Um, authority to restructure arrangements, for example. The landscape here, the political landscape was, you know, a government needed revenue at that time. There was a lot of debate in the media about um, how much tax multinationals were paying. There was journalists working through, you know, multinationals, Australian accounts to work out how much profit they made and how much tax they paid. Like a witch hunt, right? Oh, yeah. And it went on for years, yeah. you know, quite a quite a long time. And as part of that, the government had, you know, felt important to mention the eight to ten action items as part of our law, but also introduced a few other parts of law as well. One of which is the diverted profits tax. Is a not necessarily a part of the income regular income tax law, but a part of the anti avoidance provisions. So if a taxpayer entered into an arrangement with the object of reducing their tax liability, then the diverted profits tax would apply and the penalties were more significant, 40% of the tax. But it had actually a transfer pricing or an arm's length component to it so the taxpayer right. could demonstrate that the results were arm's length so the diverted profits tax wouldn't apply. But it wouldn't necessarily mean that the OECD guidelines were taken into account. It would just be a commercial realism analysis. Right. In addition to the DPT, the Diverted Profits Tax, there was the MAL as well, the Multinational Anti-Avoidance Legislation, which was really a set of laws or set of rules to encourage taxpayers to restructure um, PEs so that they are recognised in Australia to convert them to full uh, subsidiary status because what the ATO had seen before that mm-hmm. was sort of sales booked offshore and no local presence uh, recorded at all. I was actually going to ask you whether or not there were other initiatives launched by the ATO for the purpose of identifying tax avoidance, right? So, mm. I mean, I think that that was, the, what, what, what did you call it, the MAL? The MAL, M-A-A-L, yeah, was okay. one. And, and, you know, that was part of a broader, you know, program, uh, you know, over a number of years, which kind of, and they had different names, but I think the last name um, when I left was the Tax Avoidance Task Force, which did a couple of things. It actually funded the ATO 
essentially double the number of auditors and economists able to do transfer pricing, you know, work. And also was part of the larger program was the law change and the um, bringing in the updated OECD guidelines into our law, ensuring that they were applied properly. And as part of that tax avoidance task force, there was um, a program of work around risk reviews and audits, you know, where I think the top 100 largest taxpayers were reviewed every year, mm-hmm. top 1,000 or the next 1,000 taxpayers were reviewed every three years and then taxpayers below that, of which there were about 500 or so, would be reviewed by uh, the ATO's risk algorithms, which relied on data from all the different sources to understand whether there was a potential TPE risk or not. And just interrupting very briefly for a moment for our first CPE code word, and that code word is koala. And if you don't know what a koala is, maybe you need to go to Australia and find out. Anyway, back to our conversation. And what about the documentation? I mean, is that a requirement in Australia? This has been a sort of an area that I think needs a little clarification, right? Mm. (laughs) Documentation per se is not mandated, but... There are strong incentives to have contemporaneous documentation. If there was an audit started and the ATO proposed an assessment and adjustment to the tax return, then if there was no or inadequate TP documentation, then the rules would mean that the taxpayer would not be able to argue that they had a reasonably arguable position. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's trying to ensure that the taxpayer makes an honest, a decent attempt at trying to trying to get an arm's length um, transfer of price in place for whatever transaction is is under review. And while it might not be compulsory, I mean, let's mm. let's let's look at it from the point of, you know, how it aligns with the OECD three-tiered approach or mm. or differs, right? Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about the alignment or the differences with the OECD's guidance? Yeah, well, with the obviously the country by country report is required. You know, the master file is required and the local file is required. There are a few little differences with the Australian approach to local file because we've had international dealing schedule, which is a, a schedule of all the related party dealings that taxpayers had over the last year with the significant jurisdictions. So for a long time, we've had something, well, the ATO has had something slightly better than the local file anyway. You know, there's a little bit of coordination between the local file and the, and the, and the international dealings schedule there. You know, in addition to that, uh, you know, taxpayers who've got revenues in Australia of more than 250 million, you know, also have to complete the reportable tax position schedule as well. But the third part of that schedule is important. It's actually a list of 26 questions where the taxpayers have to disclose whether the, how they come up against some of the risk ratings from the practical compliance guides. So, For example, if a taxpayer is a distributor, goods purchased from a related party, then they need to disclose, you know, what they're self-assessed. You know what their risk rating is. You know based on the practical compliance guide around the um, inbound inbound distributor metrics, and that's an important way for the for the ATO to decide whether the taxpayer is in the red zone of those practical compliance guides. Obviously, no real no taxpayer really wants to put themselves in the red, in a red zone. Well, I was going to say, um, would they mm. have you seen taxpayers perhaps? 
change their internal policy so that they don't have to indicate that they would fall in the red zone or, or why would they do that to themselves? <laughs> yeah. And this is, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this is where transfer pricing gets, you know, even more complicated is Australia is a small country, 25 million people, you know, not a big market in the scheme of things, parents, uh, transfer pricing policies, you know, that apply for the rest of the world you know, may not change just for the ATO. If a parent has got transfer pricing policy and they may have signed up APAs with other jurisdictions consistent with that policy, you know, in different in different countries around the world, but when it comes to Australia, they don't want to change it, then they might choose to disclose they're in the red zone but have good documentation or propose an APA um, or a bilateral APA or a map even. That would allow them to get some kind of coverage uh, or explain why you know their red zone result is is still an arm's length one. So that's it's an interesting leverage point the ATO is trying to push there. The traffic light says don't do it. If you do do it, <laughs> you know there will be consequences. I agree. I mean, I think it seems like it's a pretty clever move by the ATO because you're essentially putting the onus on the taxpayer to indicate whether or not there is uh, something to be evaluated, right? Mm -hmm. And then the ATO doesn't have to necessarily invest any time and resources until they evaluate that risk assessment and then they can target taxpayers accordingly. Exactly. They can locate their resources and the compliance guide, you know, says, you know, if you're in the red zone, we're going to come and talk to you. There's a big incentive for taxpayers to be prepared. The ATO has you do the work for them, right? It's a, yeah. it's a, <laughs> it's a great system. <laughs> but, I mean, I'd like to bring it back full circle really quickly because this, in terms of documentation not being compulsory, but with mm. all these additional requirements and the risk assessments and things of that nature that, that are compulsory, that require mm -hmm. filing, in a lot of ways, you can't get those forms completed without having the documentation. Mm. Am I mm -hmm. right? That's right. They, you know, ask questions about what method have you used and and so on, and to include the agreements. I've seen companies go without it and forget transactions, but you know, it's uh, not a not a pretty outcome. No, definitely not. Why doesn't the ATO just make the documentation mandatory if you really need it to be able to address all those forms, the tax forms? I mean, it's a good question. It's one that does come up occasionally because it would make taxpayers' lives just a little bit easier because they would actually know what the standard was and what the what boxes that they would need to tick, you know, much more easy to understand. But the tax law in Australia is on a self-assessment basis. The onus is on the taxpayer to assess for themselves what their tax obligation is. And then it's the role of the um, tax office to collect the tax as well as to check whether the law has been applied you know, appropriately. So it's that after the fact, after the lodgement of the tax return checking is, is what the ATO is focused on. You know, to try to address that, that issue, why doesn't the ATO be more explicit or transparent around the documentation requirements, practical compliance guides and the reportable tax position schedule, you know, the IDS all encourage the taxpayer to know that they have to do a fair bit to get, you know, to, to, get, be, to get their self-assessment to be yeah. fairly robust, Yeah. You know. 
A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Now, let's talk a little bit about benchmarking, because in this current post-BEPS environment, a lot of jurisdictions are requiring local benchmarks. And even before the BEPS initiative, I think Australia has always been a country that has preferred mm. local benchmarks. It, it, is that a preference or is that a mandate? Definitely not mandated. It's definitely preferred. You know, and being a small country, there's not a lot of independent you know, operations and, you know, thinking about distributors, there's probably 10 or so independent distributors at any point in time, you know, that could be available companies, comparables, you know, qualitative screening, you know, to be included in a, in a benchmark set. So the number is quite small, even on some of those basic, um, basic activities other countries might, might almost take, take for granted. So the ATO will consider overseas comparable sets. You know, but gee, they need to be on point right. and um, they need to be better than a rough standard applied just, just to Australia. Is there a tax authority preference of, and this might be on a case-by-case -case basis, but, mm. you know, public versus private companies, would you rather have private companies operating in Australia or public company data operating mm. in similar geographic markets? Well, we would, I think the ATA would prefer, you know, public companies. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that's almost the gold standard in, you know, independent benchmarks. But because the, you know, the pool of comparables runs a bit shallow, the ATA will consider private companies as well if there is sufficient information knowable about those operations that make them at least as good as comparables as, as the public companies are. Well, the economist practice made in the last few years was for a long time they preferred only public companies because they weren't confident in using the private company data and often information around those private companies was often insufficient to make a call on. But they've loosened that send up a bit uh, now, I think, and private companies can be included. But having having said that, you know, you need to have a similar jurisdiction, you need to have similar market, you need to consider the differences in the markets mm -hmm. and you would, the private company was used then one would need to have sufficient information around that private company to make a call on whether it was functionally sufficiently um, similar, yeah, and especially yeah. around the risks. But some business models adopted by multinationals that may be reasonably common offshore, but some of them are not common at all in Australia. So mm -hmm. there can be, you know, scope to include offshore comparables if if they're closer business models than what the Australian.
I see this a lot when uh, companies expand to regional comparables for purposes of benchmarking the Australian Tested Party. The consensus or the norm seems to be to expand it to the Asia Pacific region, right? So you have a lot of mm. Asian comparables that were considered to be similar geographic markets. But, you know, personally, I think I can make an argument to say the Australian economy is more akin to the uh, to North America. The Asian markets can be quite a bit different. Yes. You know, from the Australian market and European and, and North American comparables or companies, I should say, often operate in a, in a much more similar way to the Australian market. And, yeah. you know, for example, in Japan, distributors, there might be three or four layers of distributors sometimes in some of the, in some of the value chains. You know, and depending on what distributor took a what level of value chain, you know, the results could be quite a bit, could lead you down a, a path that wasn't as sound as you'd, as you'd prefer. Even if you have those US and European distributors, I think it's better to give them less weight than than, than Australian comparables. The ATO likes to see a multi-year analysis, and I think they've ultimately accepted or, or prefer five years as opposed to a standard three. Any any thoughts about why five versus three versus... Well, <laughs> it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like for a long time, the ATO did accept, you know, you know, three or five year, you know, multi-year averages. So in thinking about the, you know, multi-year analysis, I think the ATO likes to hedge its bets, put it that way, and, and do it so a number of ways. We'll do a three or five year average for multi-year analysis, but we'll look at extreme outcomes. So losses, you know, would attract attention. But also, you know, in the ATO's context, they were to make an assessment, they would have to calculate the adjustment on an annual basis. So they would the ATO would need to then to calculate what the adjustment is not based on a three-year average, but on, on what that and each individual year would need for it to become arm's length. So, you know, in, in the past, in the good old days, in the early 2000s, the ATO would often negotiate a $100 million adjustment and they just apportion it over the three years, whatever the order period was. So it made a bit of sense commercially and allowed the taxpayer to agree. No one was really fussed about how the numbers you know, were allocated as long as the end result was the same. Recently, there's been much more of a legal approach to the analysis and with the question, why is you know, the result in that year not an arm's length result, given this is what the comparables say, this is what the company's commercial context is or was, and so on. I think the three to five years might be much more common as a risk review tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, extreme results one way or another would attract a bit of attention. I'm just trying to understand why those things were the the way they were. And interrupting very quickly for our second CPE code word, and that code word is kangaroo. And if you don't know what a kangaroo is, I can't help you. You just need to watch more TV. Anyway, back to our conversation. So the ATO, I I think we talked about this before, basically says that a taxpayer needs to show a reasonably arguable position. What is your advice for taxpayers on how to be sure that they've taken a, a reasonably arguable position? Yeah, having a rep, you know, is, is important because the penalties can change quite quickly. But generally, the taxpayer will need to set out what the actual conditions are relevant mm-hmm. to the transaction, so what actually happened. 
you know, what are the comparable circumstances to identify the arm's length conditions. Methods were used to identify the arm's length conditions. So, you know, price is an arm's length condition, but the taxpayer should also consider, you know, whether the other parts of the intercompany agreement are also arm's length. They need to work out whether their transfer pricing position is appropriate. So they need to make a judgment around whether the outcomes you know, are consistent with how the law applies. And they also need to consider any changes or updates to the, both the transactions, to the circumstances, and to how the law um, works as well. For most taxpayers, if they're following the OECD guidelines, then they'll get there. But if they try to do it non-contemporaneous, then it could be doubtful whether they have a wrap. Mm-hmm. If they've just applied a number without a basis for it, um, without a comparable study, or that's insight from what third parties do, Right. And parties do, then you know, then then it can get a bit doubtful whether they have a wrap or not. Essentially, based on in all those requirements, Jeff, I feel like the the recommendation should be don't don't have any shortfalls in your documentation, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> create robust um, documentation. So <laughs> that's right. Make sure your documentation is is absolutely perfect. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So, Jeff, this is all extremely insightful, and I'm curious, I mean, based on what you were saying before, what's been the focus of the ATO these days during an audit? What I need to kind of explain to taxpayers is that, you know, in a way, the audit starts at at the ATO's risk assessment stage. You know, the ATO would spend, you know, six to nine months working through all of the taxpayers' TP documentation and trying to get an understanding of the business, you know, and looking at the cost of goods sold, the cost of debt, the way intangibles have been treated, the cost allocations coming from headquarters and so on. And so during the risk assessment stage, though, for a top 1,000 company, the ATO will get fairly detailed into what they like and what they don't like and kind of point to individual transactions. But, you know, but in trying to answer that question, I would say calendar year 20, you know, the ATO, there's been, I think, 14 developments around TP, you know, in the in the market. Um, there's been two taxpayer alerts, for example. One of those has been, been on um, transfer price and treatment of um, Australian developed intangibles. You know, so anything that the ATO announces um, like that, a taxpayer alert, a, um, a compliance guide, you know, the treatment of um, some of the government's subsidies from resulting from the COVID, COVID crisis, you know, anything the ATO has done that year, that's what they will um, focus on in, in particular. So or, it's the rolling or, challenge. <laughs> the rolling challenge, but the ATO recently gave an update on its compliance program and they've said in year 2020, more than 180 companies have received assessments of 2.5 billion Australian dollars, and there's uh, 26 of those have got um, assessments of six, around 60 million dollars or more. So there's a lot of smaller adjustments, that total number as well. Most of those assessments have involved Singapore. They've involved resource companies, so Australian minerals and gas and liquids um, being exported offshore through Swiss or Singapore trading arrangements. E-commerce, and there's only a few of those companies, so they're in the in the spotlight. Pharmaceutical, health and science companies as well. Australian intangibles not being recognised as part of the profit outcome, which makes it challenging when one is looking at comparables, how to recognise Australian intangibles. Related party finance, court cases, 
there's two of those ongoing, which are important. Well, the ATO would probably say that they wrote half the Chapter X for the OECD on finance arrangements. Well, I mean, I think the Chevron case was a huge yeah. win for the ATO. And, and, you know, we can talk yeah. about that during a whole other podcast. But yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah. And that's under appeal. It'll be heard next early next year. That's an exciting time with lots of new experts and lots of, lots of arguments. The other court case is um, Singtel Optus, which is one of our two largest phone carriers here owned by a Singapore company. And their related party finance arrangements is being challenged in the, in the courts. Got it. Oil and gas, as I mentioned, is part of the, what we call marketing hub arrangements through um, the Glencore um, issue is a marketing hub arrangement, for instance. Royalties, where a royalty is embedded in payment product. And still, the ATO is pursuing MAL and DPT cases. So they're still actively considering whether both the MAL and the DPT could apply to um, uh, some of the arrangements that they're seeing. And, and do you think the ATO is going to continue to invest in research? and expand its team of economists or field auditors or things of that nature? Mm. Well, the, the Tax Avoidance Task Force provided significant funding for the ATO, essentially doubled their staffing levels in this area. But that was a finite program. And if they achieve results and if the risk is still there, then the government will have an incentive both politically and from a budget you know, revenue perspective to you know, roll that funding over and continue to invest. But I would say, you know, the ATO, you know, doesn't sees in a way risk reviews and audits as a bit of a transactional approach. You know, lacks a bit lacks a kind of broader strategic context to how to run a, a compliance program or how to manage the risk landscape. So they'll still continue to invest, I think, in practical compliance guides, taxpayer alerts, the point of issues that they see around risky arrangements. And they'll steadily build up that, you know, air quotes, body of knowledge, the kind of, as you're pointing out before, Mimi, you know, kind of corral taxpayers into doing the ATO's work for them mm-hmm. and over time manage down the level of risk from transfer pricing. So I think that's the broader strategy there. And I think you had touched upon this before. The Given the current environment, right, with the global pandemic, I think the ATO had offered some guidance as it relates to transfer pricing. What are some of those recommendations? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, uh, the ATO released a couple of things. One of which was, you know, thinking about the problem of or in the middle of a COVID crisis, you know, comparables won't show, you know, their results, you know, from the COVID crisis for another year or two when their accounts are publicly available. So but the taxpayers are doing their analysis now, trying to meet their tax obligations now. How should they kind of adapt their transfer pricing policies for the current environment? For some companies, the ATO has recommended that taxpayers undertake a what's described as a but-for analysis. So if the taxpayer can show but-for the economic impacts of the crisis, they would have achieved, you know, obviously the outcomes, you know, then the ATO for this year would accept that those results were were arm's length. To understand how to do that but-for analysis, you know, one has to think about what the revenue implications were, you know, what the cost implications were, what kind of business planning was was underway in the early part of the year and, and, and so on. So it'll be a little bit of an exercise for taxpayers to, to work out. But for COVID-19, they would have been 
that would have had an unintended outcome. And then last but not least, can you tell us anything about the ATO's JobKeeper program? The JobKeeper um, program was a government subsidy for wages, you know, that kicked in around March and was to was to last for, I think it was five months, six months. And I've just this week reduced it to reduce the rate of the um, subsidy. It was $1,500 a fortnight for each employee, regardless of whether they were part-time or full-time. Um, to keep the company afloat. But the subsidy was contingent on the business suffering a 30% decline in, in turnover and they couldn't be more, couldn't be a billion dollar revenue business, for example, and they couldn't be a bank either to get the subsidy. But for a lot of companies, it was March, April period, that's, it was what kept them afloat and kept them in business. You know, the government JobKeeper program does raise some interesting transfer pricing questions around you know, how should um, uh, the transfer price um, take into account a government subsidy for wages? And the government has released some guidance on this point. Specifically, they say that for services from Australia being charged offshore, then essentially the um, subsidy should be ignored. So the cost base would be the same and the markup would be the same. And so the charge to the offshore affiliate would be the same as pre-COVID and that would be would not be problematic, I don't think, for most taxpayers. We're just providing, you know, headquarters services, but it might have might raise some issues for some taxpayers who have an Australian affiliate providing marketing or similar services to an affiliate who would be reporting or recording sales from Australia. So in that sense, some of the e-commerce businesses might find that approach a little bit unusual if they've suffered revenue impacts of their own and they couldn't take into account, um, according to the ATO uh, suggestion, the government wage subsidy. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties and adjustments and our technology is available for one flat fee a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant again apologies big four stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions ai driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and before we wrap up today's show one last cpe code word our third for this episode and that code word is reef as in the great barrier reef one of the most interesting and diverse and large ecosystems on the planet let alone underwater 
ecosystems that Australia is known for and is in a lot of danger thanks to climate change. I will leave it at that, though. Getting back to our subject. Now comes the time for my favorite part of the show. It is time for our rapid fire round of questions we like to call what we want to know. But always the first question is, Jeff, are you ready? I am far away. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Our second favorite question to ask, I would say, what mistakes do you see multinational companies making again and again? Yeah, that's a good one. um, I think assuming that kind of a TP documentation is the first and last thing they need to do. When the ATO comes knocking, you know, the taxpayer, you know, really does need to engage and understand where the ATO is, is coming from. And they shouldn't assume that they're, Technical analysis is the first and last um, part of the conversation. You know, it's really important for the uh, for taxpayers to think about whether the arrangement is commercial as well as, you know, whether the outcomes from the TP analysis are commercially realistic as well. Right, right. Uh, for the next question, I would say uh, consider the personal um, perhaps before the societal, but name one positive thing that has come out of the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders for you. Well, hasn't it been great to know one's loved ones all the better? Yeah. Yeah, I'll say that. I'll, I'm with you there, too. Uh, my cat might not agree, ah. but but uh, I, I love the little tyke. Anyway, uh, favorite thing that you could only do in Australia? Well, I, I enjoy uh, hiking and, and camping. So, you know, camping in the Australian bush means, you know, lots of uh, native wildlife like Kangaroos, wallabies, koala bears, cockatoos, you know, eagles, and um, trying to stay out of the way of the snakes and uh, spiders. Right. Uh, A little different from perhaps the mistakes you would see multinational companies making again and again, but maybe perhaps something uh, that M&Es aren't thinking of. What is your best transfer pricing advice for M&Es in 2021? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, And I think, you know, the working from home experience you know, is really an important one. And for a lot of taxpayers, you know, who are need to focus on reduction in revenue, which also means, you know, they'll need to manage costs all the more. They may be persuaded to do business restructures, you know, run their operations more from other jurisdictions than from, say, from Australia. So if they're thinking about restructures, then they'll need to think carefully about how their transfer pricing policies and their implementation adapt to that new COVID real post COVID reality. That's an important one. That business restructures. Love it. Uh, do you have any motto that you live by? I like the acronym GSD. Get stuff done. <laughs> that makes two of us pragmatists <laughs> at our core. Yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for being on today's show. Thank you to everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already. While you're there, check out our news program, The Fiona Show Hot Off the Press, your transfer pricing reg changes and headlines from across the world in under 10 minutes. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer, and Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. This episode coming to you from the land down under, but tune in next week to find out where else in the world we're talking about transfer pricing. Until then, stay safe, wear a mask, and we'll catch you then. Hey.